Let's go. You're listening to Making Data Simple, where we make the world of data effortless, relevant, and yes, even fun. Hey, podcast listeners, Al Martin here. Thank you for listening to Making Data Simple. As always, I'm just going to jump right in today. I have with me Ronan Dar, who is the co-founder and CTO of Run.ai. Ronan loves academia. He loves startups. He loves taking part in the AI revolution. So today, the topic is really going to be just that, AI. What's your background? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, my background before Run AI, um, before Run AI, I did both academia and both uh, startups and companies, serving both in the industry. So I did industry and academia in parallel. I did my master's, PhD, and postdoc in information theory. So I learned a lot, studied a lot of uh, uh, ways to how uh, learning systems are working, how to measure information in data, how to extract data for how to extract information from data efficiently, so things like that. So that was me in the academia. In parallel, I worked in companies, uh, in chip companies actually here in Israel, mainly for a startup that uh, we developed uh, a chip that runs on top of storage, flash storage, and improving flash storage, uh, allowing to store more bits into the flash storage. And um, so over there, I built, I need, I, I learned how uh, how it is to build, design chips. Um, and so my background is, you know, combining um, software and hardware experience, and combining both academia and industry. And I brought that, I, I brought that experience to Run AI. And so uh, with Run AI, we're uh, we're in the AI space, and we're really coming from the bottom, from the hardware, uh, building, a, building software stack, building a software company that really is attached to the hardware and those uh, accelerators for AI like GPUs. Now, how long have you been with Run AI, or how, how long have you founded the, the company? How long has it been in existence? So we started in 2018. So it's me and my co-founder, uh, Omri. Uh, we know each other from the from the academia, and we actually had the same supervisor, uh, mm-hmm. both of us, and with our supervisor, we, the three of us started running AI five, more, a little bit more than five years ago. And we knew that we want to be in the AI space. And we saw back then, you know, when we did the ideation phase, we saw that there were these amazing capabilities of AI. There is a, a technology here that is going to change the world. And we knew that we want to be part of it, right? We want to change, help to change the, the world with AI. So uh, we also saw that hardware is really critical for AI applications. Uh, you need a lot of compute power for running AI workloads. And we saw that the cloud was actually built for running microservices, running applications on commodity CPUs. Uh, while AI is really compute intensive, it needs mm-hmm. a lot of computing power. It runs on those AI accelerators like GPUs. Um, those GPUs are really typically scarce and expensive. So the software stack that that runs on top of those GPUs, we saw the gaps over there. We saw you know, uh, um, um, the inefficiency in how hard it is to manage and orchestrate infrastructure and actually utilize well infrastructure for AI. So we, we went into that and we, we decided to, you know, to cover those gaps and build a software stack that runs on top of GPUs and actually provide a, like a software platform for AI companies. Could you kind of predict the future then? Because you've been doing this since before 
AI was cool. Now I'm from IBM. We've been doing it for some years for forever. In fact, you know, back in the fifties, it depends on how far you want to go, but look what the transformer comes out and what somewhere around 2017, 2018, what predicated your, your founding of run.ai? Oh, great question. So I think I really believe in trends, right? My father was an investment broker, so he, he taught me on how to look at on trends, right? On how to identify trends. So trends are important. And I think we saw back then the trend of um, bigger models being developed using more data, using more compute. And, and you know, we saw that uh, there are three big components for AI, uh, compute, data and, uh, and algorithms and having those free, right? Like you can create AI. And, you know, um, since 2012, 2013, we're seeing this trend of more and more compute power required to train state-of-the-art models. Um, in 2012, 2013, researchers from Toronto um, actually started this big breakthrough in AI uh, with deep learning in, in the industry. With uh, you know, with the ImageNet competition training, uh, training AlexNet on actually on two GPUs. So the big mm-hmm. new thing that they did is that they showed how a bigger model can, with more parameters, can be trained by just using GPUs instead of CPUs, and actually accelerating the training time and getting to results faster, and and actually you know um, being able to train those big models and getting to amazingly, amazingly new better results. And so back then, um, the state of the, the art was to train using two GPUs. 10 years later, right now, GPT-4 was, mm-hmm. according to rumors, trained on more than 20,000 GPUs. <laughs> so yeah, you got to have uh, a few bucks for that, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, G- and GPUs b- became much, much better also, right? So actually, people in the academia studied that, that trend of more and more compute required to train state-of-the-art models, they figured out that in the last decade, 100 million X increase in compute power uh, is required to train state-of-the-art models. 100 million X increase. So that's like mind-blowing. So I think uh, that trend is really important. Yeah, very good. Thank you. So look, as I jump in here to some deeper questions, I think it's fair to kind of set this up. And that is, Allie, who is, I'll call her the broker. She's listening quietly right now. Hmm. She had listened to our podcast on Luke Aragoni, who discussed AI ROI insights and challenges. I would encourage the listeners to go back and listen to that one. It was pretty good. And we were talking about some of the biggest blockers for companies, which, I mean, there were a number that we discussed, but a lot of it came down to trust within the models, which I still stand behind. She had mentioned that uh, there was another big blocker that we didn't get into in depth, which is the GPU shortage that you just kind of mentioned. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was fantastic. We should jump into that. So I've got a ton of questions about that. And I really do want to jump in because your knowledge, but to finish up on, not necessarily finish up, but to continue with run.ai, tell us a bit more about specifically run.ai, what your day job is, what's the tech behind run.ai, run.ai, and uh, you know what's your differentiation in the market? Okay, so my day-to-day actually changed a lot uh, since we started, right? So what I did five years ago is totally different than what I'm doing now. Um, 
I think the role of the CTO really depends on on the CTO, right? On the, on the character and the personality and the skills of the CTO. So it's like I think it's in startups, it's at least it's very fluidic role. Uh, you know, there are CTOs who are who love to code. There are software developers; they will code anything, right? They they just love to program and they will build they will build like a, a big parts of the of the product itself. You know, there are. CTOs that are more oriented to product or more oriented to marketing or sales. Like it really depends on, on the CTO itself. I think for me, it's like I came from the academia, so I came with a research background. So I love research. So a lot of what I did in the past and I'm still doing is research. I have my own team and we're doing amazing research right now on LLMs, on large language models. I think there is a LLMs is, is a new market actually now. Um, with new challenges and uh, and new technology that needs to be developed, new challenges, new problems, and we're researching those problems, really understanding them well, and uh, trying to find um, new solutions, unique solutions. Right now, I'm, I'm so I'm doing a lot of research. I'm doing I'm very, I'm working very closely also with the product teams and marketing teams here in Run AI. And um, yeah, and, and for us, you know, because we wanted from the early beginning to be unique and develop um, deep technology, right, and to solve problems in a, in a profound way. So for us, the, ta- the problem that we identified is the problem of um, orchestrating um, resources for AI, orchestrating computer resources like GPUs and actually utilizing them. So um, current tools are... are were built, you know, Kubernetes, for example, the cloud-native um, framework for orchestrating containers. Right? Kubernetes, it's an amazing tool. It was built around, you know, 2015, but it was built for running microservices in the cloud, mm-hmm. commodity CPUs, right? So, so you're getting with Kubernetes a lot of tools when it comes to load balancing, auto-scaling microservices, um, you know, doing things like that, but when it comes to AI, there is a need of uh, running jobs, really compute-intensive jobs on maybe multiple nodes of GPUs. So a lot of uh, actually scheduling capabilities were missing. The scheduler, default scheduler of Kubernetes is really like uh, is really uh, provides some amazing capabilities, but some very important capabilities when it comes to batch jobs, running like batch compute-intensive training workloads are missing, like. Uh, um, I won't get into the details, you know, but about batch work uh, and a gang was scheduling, uh, sharing resources with uh, with preemption and with queuing and things like that. So a lot of scheduling capabilities are missing. So what we've built in Run AI is a scheduler that we plug into Kubernetes environments and we essentially extend the capabilities of the default Kubernetes schedulers to bring all the, the scheduling capabilities that are missing for running AI workloads in the most efficient way um, and and so and so that's one thing the second technology component that we've developed is is this gpu optimization layer where we sit at the cuda layer and what we do is we intercept cuda api calls and we essentially control access to gpus and we allow enable multiple workloads to share a thing to share the same gpu and essentially over provision gpus so over provisioning is really known is known and, and is available for CPUs, but it's uh, 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 it's not available in in uh, you know in the in the vanilla Kubernetes way. So we're we're enabling that with that component. So essentially, we bring those two pieces of, of of technologies, and and we bring more efficiency into 
a Kubernetes environment for AI. So we started from that, and then you know we've built uh, we've built tools for platform engineers, for infrastructure engineers to control uh, AI infrastructure, to control how resources are being allocated, to control how uh, how resources are being utilized, and we built a lot of tools for developers and uh, data scientists to essentially train models very easily and deploy models very easily. So there is. We built a lot of tools around just abstracting Kubernetes and abstracting all the infrastructure complexities when it comes to just running those AI workloads. So we've Makes built sense. all of that software layers and we're bringing it to, to AI enterprises. So let me see if I could summarize what you said. Basically, you're working to accelerate AI development in those large language models, cost optimization, cluster management, workflow management. And it's a platform Tell me if this is right or wrong. It's a platform that drives model deployment, uh, model training, infrastructure, which includes Kubernetes in a hybrid cloud environment. Did I do okay somewhere else? Yes, I think you did. Yeah, pretty good. Was good. You know, you know why I think I did okay is because a lot of what you have there is kind of IBM's strategy as well. So I think we we align at least on on strategy. That's 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 terrific. Let let me add one more question. What differentiates Run.ai? And if I'm a listener out there, when should I think or how should I think? Hey, I need to engage uh, Ronan and his team at Run.ai. I think what's happening today in the cloud is that it's really very difficult right now to get access to GPUs, right? Like the GPU shortage is real, I think. Uh, it's still real if you're uh, trying mm-hmm. to spin up uh, uh, high-end GPUs in the cloud, right? It's now. absolutely might... real, by the way. Yeah. I mean, it's a major yeah. inhibitor. And, and we'll get into that next. Yes, I'm 100%, but keep going. Sorry to interrupt. Absolutely, I absolutely agree. It's real and it's here and, you know, and and if you're trying to spin up an A100 or H100 in the cloud, you might wait for days until you're getting that resource. So what we're seeing now is companies just shifting the way they consume resources in the cloud, uh, moving to more like uh, securing access to GPUs, reserving access to GPUs. And while once you're doing that, then you want to have a way to control resources, to, to prioritize workloads, to have a better scheduling on those resources because they are so expensive and they are so scarce, right? So if you're getting into a point where, where you want to have control over your GPUs, you want to schedule uh, workloads and prioritize workloads, um, then, then we'll shine, right? Then we're shining. We're, we're, just allow, we're allowing uh, teams to get much more out of their GPUs, out of their infrastructure, and essentially you know, get more access to GPUs, more availability of GPUs, and essentially uh, running faster, right? Teams become more, more productive when they have simple access to GPUs when they just can fire up jobs very easily and at scale. So Teams becomes more productive and development is being accelerated. As you said, you said it, you said it well. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll, uh, I'll dive in on several of those uh, pieces, but um, so, so clients will come to you essentially when they need help driving some of that run AI or do you have entities around the world or is it, local to Israel, or do you serve any customer no matter where they reside? Yeah, so um, engineering and product are, are mainly here in Israel. Most of the go-to-market teams are spread around, um, mainly in the U.S., so we have a big focus on the U.S. Uh, we have teams also in EMEA, and we have teams also in APAC, right, covering that, those regions. We have customers all over the world, right? Like, uh, we have big enterprises, that we work with uh, from, you know, uh, big banks 
uh, from gaming companies, from you know the biggest uh, the Gen AI companies. Like I don't want to just throw names, but yeah, we can oh, see those names on, on our website. Yeah. So l- let's dive into GPUs. That's kind of what what intrigued me about this this conversation. And look, um, let's first start off with. I know I, I know this will seem odd because everybody should know what a GPU is that's listening to this podcast. But if you could. Explain your definition of GPUs. You know, it is making data simple as the podcast, and then we'll start diving down into GPUs. What? Why GPU? Why? Why not CPU? For GPUs exist for the last thirty years, right? GPUs are not new in the, the world, right? They're graphical processing units. They will build for graphical applications, like in gaming, right? In gaming, you need to generate graphics very fast at scale. Graphics is, is an amazing application where you have a lot of linear computation that you need to, to do, right? Uh, gr- that's graphics. A lot of matrix um, um, uh, multiplications and other linear calculations uh, that you can essentially parallel very efficiently. So GPUs were built for, for as, a, as a parallel machine that can process amazingly fast linear calculations in parallel uh, and essentially accelerate uh, those type of workloads. So the main application was gaming for many years. NVIDIA had this big vision of enabling also other workloads to run on GPUs and essentially be accelerated by GPUs. So they built CUDA and they built a lot of software tools just for simplifying the uh, for developers, the, uh, the, uh, just uh, having a way to run applications on that GPU. It turns out that in AI, in deep learning, in language models, you have a lot of linear calculations, a lot of matrix multiplications that you can parallelize and calculate them much more efficiently, much, much faster than you can do on CPUs. CPUs are you know, generic processor that can run a lot of workloads but uh, but it's 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 not specialized to linear calculations to parallel calculations. So those Toronto researchers, uh, ten years ago, they they invested a lot of efforts for uh, running models, new models on GPUs and trained them on GPUs. Back then there wasn't uh, TensorFlow or PyTorch wasn't exist right, so it was really difficult to. To, to train a model on a GPU, right? right? But they did it. And, and, um, and then, right, there is a new application called AI that can be accelerated significantly 100 times, you know, 1,000 times faster uh, compared to CPUs. And that application just exploded. That's, that's kind of the key, right? You can use traditional programming techniques within AI, also for quantum, which is interesting. Uh, that we're promoting here at, at IBM. But here's what I heard you say. So CPUs, you know, look, we're getting faster clock speeds, additional cores, but when you're just, dis- we need to design for parallel processing. That's where GPUs come in. They accelerated or started with 3D graphics. They started at gaming and then they're advancing to artificial intelligence, high performance computing, deep learning, et cetera, et cetera. When it comes to training, there's NVIDIA or there's, you know, you can use a number of GPUs to be able to achieve your goal from, you know, whatever large language model you're, you're training. Uh, big corporations like IBM, Google, Microsoft can pay billions to get these models trained. 
size is going to matter in the future, particularly on the inferencing side, where clients have to have a number of GPUs to be, be able to inference correctly. And I don't think that's commonly known once you take the large language model. So, you know, our strategy here at IBM, by example, and it's a strategy I believe in is, you know, size does matter. We're going to have smaller, more purpose domain driven models to be able to keep that cost low, but we're still at the age of giant AI models right now. <laughs> so yeah. I don't know where, where you think it, we're headed, but I think we're going to have to reduce those models significantly in the, and like the IBM strategy, but look, I'm, I'm up for counter opinions. Otherwise mm -hmm. this isn't going to be scalable for our clients. Yeah, I think your 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 point on size is really important. Um, I think you can view it in different ways, but size in AI is important. So first of all, I think like the past showed us that uh, bigger is better in AI. Right? Bigger models mean better results. Models that can solve bigger problems, more complex problems. I also agree with you that. Once there is a use case which you can solve with AI and there is a specific task that AI can solve, then it doesn't always make it doesn't make sense always to use gigantic model right to solve that specific task right so when it comes to specific tasks, I do see how companies right like will, will shrink more shrink their models make them more specialized into that specific task so they can run it more efficiently, so the cost will, will, will be lower. In the future, what I'm imagining is that you know, innovation and new results will come from building new models, bigger models, right? Like bigger models with more parameters that can do new stuff. But we will always see also this trend of taking specific tasks, specific use cases, and solving those specific use cases with a with you know smaller and smaller models so things can become more and more cost effective so I, I totally agree on that i'll give the the listeners an example i mean ibm is building large models as well like everyone we just recently released a, a code gen model i think it's actually the largest on the market right now of course there could be something that maybe i haven't seen or just came out you know by the time we hear this which is uh Right now, ours is like 1.6 trillion tokens. I think 1 trillion is probably the largest one I've seen outside. We have 115 programming language, or we have 20 billion parameters. I think there's like 15 billion outside. I could go on and on. Uh, the context window is is pretty pretty large as well. But we know that, look, that's going to be an arms race. I mean, everybody's going to continue yeah. to build bigger and that kind of stuff. Our position is more in line with, again, the fine-tuning aligning with workflows, uh, customer workflows, and, and getting it into a reasonable cost for clients to be able to take advantage of some of these uh, large language models, as I just mentioned. Where do you think context windows, parameter size, where, where do you think that's going to evolve? So you mentioned two things, right? Parameter size, <laughs> just number of parameters. You, yeah, you were at IBM training models with 20 billion parameters, right? That's what you said. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. How many? For, for, that, that's with uh, the code, code assistant. We got many models, yeah, but that's just it. the code assistant, the code gen model that I'm referring to that we released a few weeks ago. Got it. Yeah. So 20 billion parameters, right? Like if you're running with the float 16 presentation, right? Then, then you need like around 40 gigabytes of GPU memory, right? For just hosting uh, a single replica of that model, right? So if you. 
Yeah, so that's like the the rule of thumb, right? Like that. That's important for for just understanding why the number of parameters in your model is important, right? Because bigger models with more parameters mean that uh, you're doing more calculations, right? You need more you need more compute power, but you also need more GPU memory to store those weights. Typically, common models are. Uh, 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 run with 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 16 bits, right? With float 16. So with float 16, the the rule of thumb is that you multiply by a factor of two uh, the number of weights to get the size of the chip of the memory that you need in your GPU to store those weights, right? So with 20 billion parameters, you need 40 gigabytes of GPU memory. So the new high-end GPUs, they come with 40 gigabyte of GPU memory, but there are versions with 80 gigabyte of uh, GPU memory. So you can host one model like that in, on one GPU, right? If you have a, a GPU with 80 gigabyte of memory. So that's fine. But, but uh, for example, you know, uh, Llama 2 comes with in different sizes. It also, the bigger uh, size is... 70 billion parameters and for 70 billion parameters you need 140 gigabyte of memory so for that model you need a few gpus just to run one replica of your model right just right processing one prompt and 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 resulting in an answer you need like four around four gpus just to run one uh, one prompt so that's amazing that's a lot of gpu so so right more parameters mean more gpu memory more gpu compute that you need and that's like it means that your model is 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 more expensive context windows same thing right you have longer context windows so that can be amazing you can um, you can have longer inputs uh, you can you know maybe send like whole documents to your llm and ask your llm to get insights out of those documents right so uh, longer inputs are is, is amazing also longer outputs is amazing because you can ask your llm you know to produce um, a whole artic articles and things like that so but longer context windows mean uh, more calculations and essentially also more gpu memory so also uh, your models become more expensive when context windows are becoming longer and longer and there are some academic work being done today on on context windows or very long context windows people are showing that it's uh, uh, llms are uh, losing accuracy and actually losing their attentions when the input length is very long um, so it's like a, you know a, it's like human beings uh, when you uh, read a very long article you might lose your attention you lose your focus somewhere at the middle and maybe you'll be very focused at the beginning and at the, at, the, at the end. So researchers showed something like that also with LLMs, right? They, they lose their attentions around the middle when the input length are very long. So, you know, it, it, it's really interesting what, what will happen. Um, in LLMs, I don't know like how much the models will become bigger, but I do think that for the new innovations in AI, the new model architectures, my prediction is that they will be bigger than what we see the state of the art model. So you think we're going to continue with the size? It's just going to keep going? I think so. But the, so let me back up. My question is going to be, how is that affordable for AI to be democratized in that case? Because like you mentioned, you've got to have your own GPUs for inferencing, et cetera. Bigger the model, the more GPUs you're going to need. Like I stand by my original position that I think trust 
And by the way, you're well, welcome to debate with me on this. But I think trust is still the biggest inhibitor just because there's so many facets of trust right now with AI from hallucinations to, you know, where's your data coming from? Uh, do you have copyrighted data to you've seen what's happened in open AI? You know, they, they kick the CEO out. He's, he's back. It's because of safety. No, it's because of this or that. It's like, oh my goodness, what are we getting into? Who can you trust? So to me, it's that's still like number one. Hmm. But then quickly, I mean, there's so many other things. Then do you have access to all your data? Is it your data that you want to differentiate? You want to keep it to yourself? There's, you know, maybe that goes back into trust. I don't know. But then comes cost in there someplace. Um, you know, how do you... Well, let me, let me ask the question this way. What is your advice for clients right now? You had, you referenced several rule of thumbs, which I think are very interesting, but what's your advice for clients getting into the space that are confused as hell right now? Yeah. Okay. That's a big question. (laughs) (laughs) That's why I got a big guy like yourself to to answer. (laughs) uh, Yeah. First of all, I, I, I totally agree on the trust issue. Trust is a huge problem. And it, you know, it comes down to a trust on on how your model is actually performing on, you know, hallucinations and whether um, uh, you're getting a, a, a too accurate results from your models or not. And it goes also back to, um, you know, a, a legal issues. Um, can I can I create, can I build applications around LLMs and make, and, you know, trust that no one will sue me? in the future, right? Those yeah, huge, right? Well, by the way, IBM indemnifies our models, but, you know, we also use third-party models, which, you know, look, you're on your own on that. I got to believe customers are really concerned about that. I mean, anyway, but that's the trust piece. We I mean, got to the cost piece, but anyway. Yeah, keep going. exactly. And then you have the cost problem, right? If you're succeeding <laughs> with AI and you actually, you yeah, you're, you have a, a use case uh, which you solve with AI, uh, you bring business value with AI, then if you're going to scale it, then it's going to cost a lot. Um, we're seeing it with OpenAI, right? Uh, um, OpenAI uh, raised $10 billion for Microsoft a year ago, right? And, and it all goes to compute, right? Yeah. Almost all of it goes to compute. And we're seeing this Gen AI companies, uh, you know, Inflection AI raised one $1.3 billion and Tropic raising billions of dollars from Google and, and Amazon. So those, you know, companies building foundational models, they for sure are raising billions of dollars for uh, for essentially for compute power. And, but also, you know, any AI company with an AI product, cost becomes super important. And right now, right, like using closed source models uh, with APIs, uh, that's really an expensive solution. Building by yourself open source models, that's that's uh, um, that's something that is doable, right? Like sometimes that's the way to go. And uh, and what we're seeing, we're seeing companies uh, trying to build AI applications with closed source models, trying to use uh, APIs, right? Um, but we're also seeing them trying the open source path. Right, taking open source models like Lama 2 and deploying them in-house and, and letting teams to experiment with them and, and, and to try to build um, applications on top of them. And I think, I think for AI leaders, it's important to understand that uh, AI is about a lot of, a lot of experimentation, right? 
experimenting with ideas. I think right now it's not that clear what are the best use cases for AI. There are some, you know, some emerging use cases like code generation that you mentioned, uh, content generation, but there are some amazing capabilities and, 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 and real applications, but not for all companies. It's, it's absolutely clear what their roadmap in terms of uh, getting AI to production, right? Like bringing business value with AI. So I think it's a lot about experimenting, uh, experimenting with different ideas and, uh, and, and with different uh, uh, use cases, uh, with different, you know, trying uh, different problems, to solve different problems with AI. So I think just um, laying down the right frameworks for your teams to experiment fast, to try different ideas fast, uh, because some of those ideas will succeed, but many of them also will fail. So if you're experimenting fast, right, like you're getting faster to results, you're trying more ideas, you can get faster to actual, you know, business value. But, very, but, but Ronan, very few businesses, I think, yeah, welcome that approach, right? I mean, I agree with you, uh, but but to to try and fail means cost and back to cost in a, you know either GPUs or not. I mean, just that you're putting resources behind it, and you may not get ROI for the investment. And we're in a position now where I think everybody has to take on AI. Or you're going to get left behind. There's going to be leaders and laggards. So I've got to do it. Then the question is, how do I do it responsibly to the company? If I'm if I'm a senior executive or CEO of, let's say, an insurance company or a financial company, what advice would you give them, though, in terms of how to get this started responsibly? Because you know that there's going to be some trials and tribulations as you go along with it, not to mention if I'm taking on some of these foundational models, as we've described, there's going to be GPU costs that I have got to take on. What expense should I be thinking? How should I get into it from your perspective? Yeah, so I think uh, there are three ways to go with AI, uh, with LLMs and Gen AI models. Um, so one way to go is to just build models from scratch, right? Maybe you want to go that route. Uh, OpenAI are doing that route. You at IBM are doing that route, right? That's amazing. That's pretty expensive route, though. <laughs> That's pretty expensive. I totally agree. It's expensive. You need talent. You need a lot of engineering power, and you need a lot. Of... That's one route. Another wa- route is is to fine-tune models, right? Uh, fine-tune um, closed-source models with your own data or go with the open-source models and try to fine-tune them and, and, and just, you know, specialize those models to your use case, to your specific task, to your specific data. Um, the third path is to just, you know, prompt and build applications on top of LLMs with, uh, you know, things like in-context learning, uh, you know, doing a sophisticated prompt engineering, uh, using methods like um, retrieval augmented generation, RUG, right? Just uh, uh, taking uh, information and and augment prompts with uh, um, with data and, and, and proprietary information that you have in your organization. So going with RUG, that's another uh, so like prompt engineering RUG, that's the third path. So all of those ways are are, yeah, um, are are possible right now. And first of all, you know, the, uh, one of the first decisions is: Do you want to train models from scratch? Yes or no? Uh, if no, then right, then uh, then go with fine tuning and prompting uh, closed source or open source models. That's for sure. And then I think, as I said, I think it's it's about uh, it's about experimenting with different ideas, 
setting up uh, the right frameworks, setting up the right infrastructure that will allow you to experiment fast to to give your teams, you know, uh, the tools, the compute they need to try ideas very fast, uh, so they are not limited by infrastructure. Um, that's part of the things that we do at Runai. Um, but also, you know, setting up the teams, uh, hiring the right talent with the right state of mind, uh, uh, having uh, the right goals around experimentations, the right metrics, and building the right culture, and just you know, trying different use cases, different applications, different ideas, and and some of them will succeed, some of them will also fail. On run, does run AI, run.ai do you support any model the client brings to you, or select models? or you do the fine-tuning or all the above? Yeah, so with Run AI, you can bring your own models. You can train your own models. You can fine-tune your own models, and you can deploy your own models. Um, you can also bring closed-source models and host them on Run AI. We're working right now on also offering open-source models out of the box, right? So you'll have... Uh, you deploy Run AI and you'll get, you know, all the the common uh, 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 models that are out there like Llama 2, Falcon. You'll get them de- deployed optimally uh, on your own infrastructure, very fast, give access to users, secured access to users within your organization, and letting your, your teams to experiment with those uh, open source models. So we're go- going to do also that. Right now, we're supporting any infrastructure, right? Like we can run uh, and, and be deployed on on your own premises infrastructure, on your cloud infrastructure, wherever it is. If you have, if you don't want internet connection, we can do that as well. And we're going to have a new offering as well, where we're going to have managed infrastructure. So um, we see that many startups, like AI startups, they don't want to manage infrastructure, they don't want to manage Kubernetes, they don't want to manage their software tools, they just want to train models, right, run fast, experiment with their data. So we're going to have this offering of having a managed infrastructure solution as well. In terms of the shortage, do you think we're headed for AI blackouts? Listen, we saw that. I think we saw AI blackouts with OpenAI, right? If you remember a year ago, OpenAI, right, introduced GPT and there were times where you couldn't get answers from ChatGPT, uh, you will get a, a response that the model is, is is not available right now, right? That's amazing. <laughs> that yeah. happened, right? And uh, and you had to pay, right? You had to have like a paid subscription to get uh, to be guaranteed to get access to to ChatGPT. But we saw AI blackouts with OpenAI. Let's see what the future will will bring to us. What is GPU fractioning? Do you use that? Yeah, so uh, that's a, that's you know, one of the components that I spoke about, right? Like we have the scheduler component and then we have the GPU oh, optimization, right? So co- by controlling the CUDA, layer, the, the CUDA uh, uh, API, controlling access to GPUs, you can fractionalize GPUs. So we can control the access to the GPU memory, to the GPU compute. So essentially different workloads can get fractions of, G- of a GPU instead of a whole GPU. So we're, we're essentially virtualizing the GPUs at the API level. So it's bare metal, no, you know, no hypervisor, no virtualization layer like uh, the old ones that you know brings overhead. Um, you're just uh, sitting at the at the CUDA layer. Where do you think we're going to be? Like, if if we have you on the podcast three years from now, 
I, I know it's always in this business, you can't predict the future, but give us a shot anyway. What, what do you think it'll look like three years from now? I get you on the podcast and we're talking and we're laughing about last three years ago when we had you on. What's changed? Where do you think we are? I think we're going to see new model architectures. So now we have the transformers. In three years, I think we'll start to see uh, new architectures that uh, bring new capabilities. I think more and more people will be afraid of AI. Just the thing. <laughs> I think it's like it's it's a real thing, right? Like uh, being, I'm worried about AI for sure. Mm-hmm. Fake information. We're going to see that at scale, and it's going to increase with time. Cyber attacks. That's exactly why I put trust at the top, bar none. I mean, I think I, I think that still follows into that bucket, uh, which is a huge concern for me. I, I joke around. I've said this on the podcast many times. I'm not worried about uh, a, a, a cyber being or whatever. I'm worried about trusting these models and and fake news and that kind of stuff. You know, the other thing I was thinking about the other day, though, I'm also worried about quantum. And here's why. I feel like there's so much attention on AI right now the community is forgetting about quantum, which is right around the corner too, as far as I'm concerned. In other words, we're so focused on AI that quantum's over here. It can break cryptography, you know, and I think it will, I'm, it's it's 100% it'll break cryptography. It's just a matter of when. So let's say in five years, well, if people are worried about AI when we need to worry about quantum just as well. And think about AI in combination with quantum. Yeah, you might be, you might be right. Yeah, listen, for me, it's hard. It's hard to wrap my head around AI. Yes. <laughs> so, so many. Well, then it's even harder for quantum. That's why people yeah. like shy away from it because it's like, ah, <laughs> uh, it's not here yet. Well, by the time it's here, it's game over. You know, I mean, you can you can break crypt- cryptography and everything's crypt- encrypted. Text messages, your bank, you know, listings, you know, everything. All right. Well, thank mm-hmm. you. Where can folks reach you and reach your company, Run AI? Yeah, so I'm on LinkedIn, I'm on Twitter, and you can find us on run.ai you know, on our website, right? Okay. And, you know, on YouTube, all the regular stuff. Yeah. All right, well, thank you for being here. Ronan Dar, everybody, co-founder and CTO of run.ai. Thank you for your insights. I greatly appreciate thank it. Thank you, Hal. I had fun. Thanks. And for all you listeners out there, hit us on almartintalksdata at gmail.com. Again, we always listen. That's how Al Ronan showed up at our doorstep, and it's been a pleasure uh, meeting him. So thank everybody, and see you on the podcast later.